Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sandman number 21, Season of Mists Prologue, also known as, in which a family reunion occasions certain personal recriminations, assorted events are set in motion, and a relationship thought long done with proves to have much relevance today. Cover date of this was November 1990, and uh, we have the return of Mike Jernberg on um, pencils uh, with Malcolm Jones III still inking. Um, colorist depends on which version you're looking at. Uh, Todd Klein as editor, Tom Perry as assistant editor, and Karen Berger as the editor. I really love that Season of Mist, each chapter, the prologue, and then all the numbered chapters get these little descriptions that are straight out of 19th century British serialized fiction. It it makes the Sandman feel like it's Dickens, and uh, frankly, it is, right? So uh, I really (laughs) love this touch. And just in general, Brent, it feels pretty awesome to be back and actually talking about an issue of the Sandman. I don't know if you were keeping track, but it has actually been a year for us behind the scenes since we have done that. We recorded our episode on Facade 13 months ago. You know, the the release schedule or, you know, the release pattern does not reflect that uh, we had to take quite a bit of time away from the the mics. But uh, yeah, it was over a year. So it's really great to be back at this. And also with a volume that you really, really loved when we were teenagers. That's got me really excited to be doing this one. Well, first off, Glenn, I do need to note that because of some curse that was put on me at some point, I only experienced time as it's released by the podcast. So it has not <laughs> been that long for me as far as I'm perceiving to the time. But but yes, this was um, – Seasons of Mist was one of my uh, favorite books uh, as a teenager. Uh, and I actually got the limited um, run. This is the first time a hardcover – was put out of a graphic novel, a collection of Sandman, um, I believe in 1992. Um, uh, there've been subsequent versions of this, but, uh, the original one, um, did not have, uh, dust covers on it. It was just a kind of faux leather cover with a golden key, which we will get to in later issues. There's a lot to like about um, this particular series, a lot that kind of unfolds, and a lot more for fans of mythology that get kind of woven into this. Although we don't get that necessarily in this uh, comic. In this comic, we, eh, with three exceptions, maybe we'll say, uh, we mainly get the mythology of world building that Neil himself is doing versus um, pasting on other mythologies. Yeah, right. I mean, what what you're saying, Brent, is that uh, this story that we're about to talk about is separated from what the rest of Season of Mist is going to be about. And that's, you know, what is meant by prologue here, right? (laughs) And so, yeah, this is a prologue. And like all fantasy prologues, there's an actual guild law that says that it has to begin with not our main character, right? And so we don't actually start with Dream. We begin with Destiny of the Endless. And uh, this is actually the most Destiny that we've gotten so far. In fact, I think, you know, the, well, certainly, there's no uh, think about it. it. This is certainly this issue here is the most Endless that we've gotten so far in this run. And I especially love this. I love Destiny a lot. So it's great for me to see Destiny here. We get a very cool tour of his home, just as we've seen Desire's home. And and of course, also Dreams, though it actually might be the case that we've seen 
less of dreams home than actually of desires or or destinies, at least in a in a, in a way anyway. And destiny here has you know a, a dwelling, like a, a, a shelter, but we actually open outside of that dwelling. We open up in his garden, and this is not a uh, a backyard garden, right? It's an aristocratic estate garden. It's got hedge mazes. It's got long paths, uh, some of them straight, some of them winding, and with many, many forks. Uh, and in fact, let's uh, let's just quote the text a little bit here, Brent. Uh, Gaiman writes, walk any path in Destiny's Garden, and you will be forced to choose not once, but many times. However, at the end of a lifetime of walking, you might look back and see only one path stretching out behind you, or look ahead and see only darkness. And this garden is something of a, a microcosmic metaphor for the entire universe and also all of its contents. It is distinct from time and space, and it is a place where the potential becomes the actual. And right now, what we, the readers, are doing is watching Destiny walk in his garden. But at this moment here, the, the story crashes in with the arrival of the three women who you know, we've met so many times and in many different guises already in the Sandman. And in this case, they are here as the Moirai, the, the, the fates of ancient Greek religion. Uh, they're here because this is where they must be at this time. And it says so in Destiny's book. And now they explain that yeah, something important is about to begin here and that Destiny has something that he has to do. We're going to get to those particulars in a moment. But first, Brent, I just want to talk about the metaphysics of Destiny and Fate as we get them in this scene. Because Gaiman opens with this just beautiful imagery of Destiny's garden as a maze of choices that we can all make. But then the Moira show up and they're all, this has been foretold and no one has any choice. Look in your book, right? Like that's what they're saying here. And so my question to you, Brent, my question about this is, which is it? Is everything preordained or do we have genuine free will or, you know, at least genuine free will within the sort of normal constraints of our of our lives? I do want to note regarding Destiny's Garden, um, I think it's a fascinating choice that there are so many paths that he is walking and it's such an expansive place in a way that, you know, desire, um, the threshold is described as immense, but we don't see that the way we, we do destiny's domain. But until he passes the, the gray ladies, it's empty. So it's a lot more maybe metaphorical than dreams realm has led to us. Dreams realm is presented to us as if it's a place that you do visit when you sleep and dream. Um, while as I, I don't know that any of us are visiting destiny's realm. Is he walking it for us? Is he, you know, otherwise? And then, you know, we're left with the imagery, which we have with destiny um, and destiny. Again, I wanted to note, I think we mentioned this in prior episodes. He is a character from some of DC's older kind of anthology comic books, particularly, I believe horror anthologies, so Neil is not has not created Destiny. He's put his own little stamp on the character, but he is not a member of the Endless um, who Neil created. He was not called the Endless before, but he was Destiny. But being shackled to this book, we have the book. And I guess to answer your question, Glenn, something I've never been quite sure about is it that the words in the book are already written, but they're not revealed to Destiny until it happens? Or... Is it that the book is still something that is being written? Because we're, we're, he interacts with the fates here and they tell him, you know, that something has to start somewhere. 
um, and that every start does have an end as well. Um, and then he reads his book to find out what needs to happen next. And it's not a hundred percent clear to me whether he reads and he finds out exactly what is going to transpire for the rest of this, you know, for issue 21, or if he just reads and he gets the omniscient narrator voice to find out what the gray ladies were actually talking about. And he just isn't going to share that information with us, the reader. <laughs> And so since we know what's in their heads, we know what they are putting into motion. And I'm not totally sure about that. Well, what's your interpretation? My sense is that Destiny only knows at, at this point what is going to happen in this issue, which in itself is interesting though, right? Because I do think that he he's not just reading things in the present moment, like measured to the nanosecond or even I think the minute, right? That he's he's getting information about the present moment uh, in which we're defining moment as uh, perhaps, you know, even like a few days into the future. So it's this kind of limited foreknowledge. Uh, so maybe even that's kind of where Gaiman is having it both ways in that the future is not preordained into e eternity or, you know, to the end of the universe, but perhaps in in small chunks might might be what he's trying to say here. I think that that's probably one way to look at it. And in some ways, it's Destiny's Garden is described to us as forking constantly. And I think that that's maybe a notable thing, that it's not that it's a wide open field and Destiny can go any direction. It's that there are a number of directions open and each choice leads to additional choices that then, you know, Destiny has and that we all have as we're walking our own version of Destiny's Garden, right? And so – in a Schrodinger's cat kind of experiment, maybe the cat's alive, maybe the cat's dead. We're pretty sure the cat is not a shark, right? We're not going to open the box and discover that the cat, you know, is really, you know, a hippopotamus who is dancing in a tutu, right? So when he comes upon the gray ladies and they say their, their statements, at that point, there are likely outcomes that will branch from that. And Maybe he's choosing the next route that he's himself is going to walk, or maybe it's never quite sure to me. I mean, I think part of uh, shackling destiny to his book is destiny really doesn't ever have control of things. He doesn't seem to make choices. He is more of the observer for all of these things. So the gray ladies show up. Does he really have a choice as to what he does in this uh, issue or has the choice already been made for him and by whom? Right. I, I, I think the choice has been made for him already. I, I think that Destiny certainly is a character who does not have any free will, at least the way this is being presented here. We may change our minds about this as we get through the series and perhaps as we, we continue to encounter Destiny in, in extra series as well. But yeah, my sense here is that he doesn't have any actual free will, and it's possible he's the only entity that, that doesn't have any free will. But there are several interesting questions here about this then. You know, one of them being, what is actually his relationship then with the fates? Why are there the fates, but then also destiny? But then I also even wonder about destiny as a prime force in the universe, the way that death and dream and desire and despair are, it does seem to me like destiny as a concept is not quite uh, of the same type of thing as the other members of the Endless that we've met so far. So he's a really interesting figure. I mean, he, he really is, because I think he simultaneously works as 
partially an audience surrogate, which is the reason we was used in the anthology series, right? Because you have someone who is just viewing the destiny that is already, you know, unfolding um, kind of externally. You also have him kind of as the metaphor, because it starts off right as, as Neil did at this comic and discussing about how you can walk destiny's garden and him being shackled to his book. In some ways, that's all just all of us also being shackled to all of the baggage of our choices and decisions that either we've made or other people have made that have affected us, that have led us to this particular moment in time or spot in our walking of the garden, right? So he kind of works in both ways, while as particularly Dream, who can kind of be rather fickle, we've talked about, like he seems to have, and, and Death is not fickle, but there's definite personalities there and they tend to make choices and be very ex expressive themselves about what they're thinking and what they're saying and like their take on things while destiny is more an observer, but yet he's still also an observer who is literally in motion. He is almost always walking. And he does actually have to take some action here as we'll, we'll see when we actually get back to the, the narrative. But before we do that, I, I want to think just a little bit more, I guess, as well about destiny with the fates. And just to think about the the imagery of them that we that we get here, the visual of them, right? I, I think mm. you've done a great job here, Brent, of emphasizing the book, right? This book that is chained to destiny. And he opens that book and reads, and that's how he knows what is happening right now. What is about to happen is that he has a book and he has to read what's in the book, right? The book has some some bit of preordained information in it. But the fates, that's not what the fates do, right? The, the fates are not readers, shackled to a book. The fates are weavers at a loom. They've each got a you know slightly different task within the weaving of a tapestry, but they are people who are actively shaping what that tapestry looks like. They are creators, uh, whereas destiny is actually kind of just the audience. The text even we have here is that destiny has no path of his own. He makes no decisions. He picks no branching ways. His way is laid out, drawn, and defined. And so it could be that the fates are part of what are drawing and defining at least part of that pathway for him. It is interesting to me, partially this is the limitation of only getting so many panels with the fates. They appear to be measuring like the bit of thread. They don't appear to necessarily be crafting anything with it or cutting it or otherwise. They appear to be like trying to ascertain how long certain things maybe will take um, and maybe the parts of the thread that lead that way. And in some ways, maybe the thread is supposed to be likened to the pathways of the garden that destiny must trod and others must trod as well. Right. Yeah. The the imagery here, the the visual that we get of them with a the thread, I mean, they're not at a loom, right? So I, I took that almost as being not a literal representation of something that's actually happening, but just a way of visually reminding us, the the readers, of who exactly these people are to make sure that we remember from you know Greek mythology, ancient Greek religion, that these are the people with the loom. Like that's what type of fates that we're, we're dealing with here to give us that contrast, or at least suggest to us that contrast with the the passivity of of reading things that in in the book and i i wonder then if 
destiny. I mean, you know, we're you know, one Gaiman didn't invent this character, and then also, you know, Gaiman is into this idea of all of the endless have to begin with the letter D. Their names all have to begin with D. So we've got destiny here. But I, I wonder if there's a, a sense in which he actually feels more like time than destiny, right? That that in terms of him representing a function of the universe that the living creatures of the universe require is time, right? As a way of of marking change, of of things actually happening, of give, giving meaning and and substance to things requires time and that he's he's more time than he is destiny, perhaps. Yeah, I think that that might be a fair interpretation based on what we have. And I do want to mention in the Sandman Companion by High Bender, um, there's an interview with Neil where he talks a little bit about the names of the Endless. Um, and he actually goes so far as to say that they don't actually have names. Uh, Neil Gaiman said, quote, none of the Endless truly have names, just functions. That's why, by the way, the Endless referred to their missing sibling in issue 10 as, quote, the prodigal, as opposed to his name as one of the Endless. Since he's abandoned his function, he's also, in effect, abandoned his name. So Destiny, in some ways, is the timekeeper, I guess, of the universe. And Destiny, if we think of it in terms of Destiny as his function, he is the one who makes sure that, you know, I guess, the fates do come about, which is perhaps then helps explain what Destiny appears to choose to do, even though we're told he doesn't make any choices in this issue. Well, the good news is that uh, we're going to get more on this, not not in this issue, and I actually don't think in this volume, but we are going to get a lot more on Destiny and the Fates as we go. Uh, I, I have forced us here, Brent, to tarry on, I think, what is just one page of this so far. And we're quite a ways into this episode already, at least in terms of, of time, watching the minute hand uh, here on the on the recording timer. But uh, we're actually still not even done with this first scene yet because we've not really talked about the content of the Moirai's message. I just wanted to talk about this big world building stuff. But uh, the fates here are very much doing a bit that would fit right into Macbeth. They, they also look the the part, um, even if you know they've got this bit of thread here rather than actual you know cauldrons. But it feels very Macbeth. And in fact, here is uh, here's what they say: A king will forsake his kingdom. Life and death will clash and fray. The oldest battle begins once more. And all these things have their genesis here in your garden, Destiny. And setting aside the you know knowledge, Brent, that you and I have from having read this whole series before, what do you think the oldest battle means in this context? I mean, it certainly sounds ominous, but are we supposed to know what that means at this point? Is this referring to something sort of outside of the the canon of, of Sandman, or is this referring to something within the Sandman or, or DC Comics? I think within the context, if I was just reading Sandman up through issue 21, I'm going to assume that because we keep seeing them clash, and particularly with what we see later this issue, that perhaps the oldest battle is something of, you know, a fight amongst or between members of the Endless, right? Because um, we see dream and desire again rubbing up against each other. We see a lot of other threats that are made. We see destiny threaten dream at one point. Um, we see death threaten desire. Delirium maybe is offering a threat at one or two points. It's really unclear. So within that context, 
I think that the reader may think that. I think that there's not a, something in DC continuity that would let us lead us to believe that there is an oldest battle. I'm not aware of that terminology used elsewhere. I think instead, Neil is trying to evoke and tie things to the kind of mythological presentation of, you know, the the creation of humans and the relationship between humans and angels and all of that stuff. Right. That's definitely my sense of this as well. I think any time in pop culture, I, you know, I've got characters saying the oldest battle. Uh, my sense is that that means some kind of battle between the forces of good and evil or between creation and uncreation, right? Depending on whether or not we're talking about things that are rooted in our world in some way, or, you know, if we're dealing with something that's totally a secondary fantasy world, right? To me, that would be a phrase that is letting me know that something like that exists. So that's definitely my sense here. But uh, I'm interested in where that's actually going to go because just we've had you know we've met lucifer of course here all already in the sandman and we've gotten some interesting lines about the literalness of well essentially what you know dante and and milton have written about heaven and hell and lucifer and angels but also we get interesting stuff about how dream was present for some of that so i i'm i'm really hooked this hooks me as i guess what i'm trying to say i want to know more about this and it could also be you know one way to look at it is putting aside specific actors in the in the play um if we look at the garden of eden and it being the oldest struggle between stagnation versus change which then also then leads to entropy and mortality and other things like that you know free will versus not there's a lot of things wrapped into that story kind of being the oldest and you know when we've seen cain and abel presented as the, you know, the first homicide, right? So here, if we talk think about the oldest struggle, maybe we're thinking something that is Cain Abel related or before, and hence thinking about the garden and decisions that were made, um, whether people actively were controlling things or whether people were rather in the position that destiny was in. And I think that's something that we'll see play out a little bit in the next couple of issues. That's a really interesting observation there, Brent. I, I think that the phrase that we get back in Preludes and Nocturnes is that Cain and Abel are from the first story, right? So that's a kind of superlative there. And oldest is a superlative here, right? So we've got a first story. We've got an oldest battle. Yeah, I think when we do the wrap up for this, let's let's juxtapose those things and see if we can really start piecing together some kind of like real uh, history of the, the, you know, the cosmology, I guess, of this, uh, you know, the speculative universe that Gaiman is building here. Yeah, I hadn't thought to make that connection, but that's really interesting. So what Destiny realizes after meeting the Grey Ladies and reading his book is that he has no choice. He has to call a family meeting. So he returns to what appears to be his palace, question mark, um, which still seems to have many kind of branching, forking um, directions you can go in it. But he goes to his gallery. And we've seen these a couple times before, the different – we've seen, I think, what dream and desires interpretations of this kind of space where for Destiny, there are nice, large, painted portraits of each of his siblings on the wall. And he – in turn, he, he summons or asks each of them to come um, for this family meeting. Um, and we see some kind of fun character play 
uh, with characters we've seen before. And we also see the first introduction of um, a member of the family who we have not met until this moment. Yeah, this gallery is really interesting because, yeah, it's not just these sigils, but entire formal portraits in the European painting tradition, right? And we we do, I think, only yeah see these three of them, though we are going to get five members of the the family here, you know, plus Destiny, of course, right? But, you know, Death is the first one that we see. And in her portrait, she's wearing this you know, heavy Victorian clothing. When she actually appears here in, in Destiny's house, you know, palace, I guess, right? She's just in jeans and some kind of sleeveless shirt, right? It's all very punk band, uh, though Destiny then makes her change her clothes. But again, when she does, actually, it's into kind of a glam rock version of what she's wearing in the portrait. It's not into what she's wearing in the portrait. But then we get Dream, who in the portrait is wearing some serious business 18th century clothing, complete with the three-pointed hat, the, the tricorn. And he shows up wearing exactly that. Though I, I also want to point out that this is not the same costume that he's wearing in 1789 in Men of Good Fortune, though <laughs> it's from that same era here, this this type of attire. And then finally, yeah, the third portrait that we see is of someone we've we've not met yet and is actually not named yet here either. But it, it's delirium. We'll just say that's who that is here. And her portrait shows a, a young woman, possibly actually an adolescent, and she's outside in some very nice green rolling hills. She's wearing a blue dress. She's got a, a wide hat and has blonde curls. And this is all very, you know, late 19th century as well. It's also, you know, very bucolic. But when she steps out of her portrait, she's wearing fishnets and leather, and she's got a buzz cut. And we do obviously need to talk about delirium. So let's do that in a a minute. And in fact, we're about to get a ton of information about the endless in general. But I just want to talk about well, the metaphysics of this again, I guess, right? The portraits and how they work, because clearly they are not showing the endless as they appear currently, right? Like in the immediate now, somehow, like in the way that like portraits in Harry Potter, you know, do that, right? So my question for you, Brent, is are these portraits then actually capturing some moment in the past when this was what the Endless actually liked to wear? Or do these portraits depict the members of his family the way that Destiny likes to think of them? You know, you know, Or is it something else entirely? Yeah, I've given some thought as to this because Destiny should not, if he's going from like when he first encountered them, obviously, as the oldest, they should be not wearing, I'll call these modern attire. So I kind of interpreted it that the paintings take on the style of the throwback architecture that also is inspiring the layout of his palace. Because when you look at the – before he we start with the portraits, when he first enters the, the hall where they are hanging, there's kind of a Greco-Roman throwback and kind of hodgepodge of styles. And I wonder if it's just – either that day, that moment, or for whatever reason, perhaps destiny is just perceived in kind of this, as you said, kind of late 19th century kind of throwback style of of looking at things in the past and, and kind of the way that's depicted. But I'm not entirely sure. Do, do you have thoughts as to 
I don't have an answer to this question, and uh, I, I would love to hear if, if listeners have answers to this question, you know, non-spoilery answers, of course, to the, this question. I do think that the portraits all look really cool, and, and I think there's almost certainly a way in which they're telling us something about the, the characters. But yeah, why, you know, I guess, well, first, whether Destiny has chosen for them to look this way in these portraits or not is, is totally unclear. But I, I like your idea, Brent, that this actually has to do with the you know, decor of his gallery to begin with, which has uh, a neoclassical vibe with the the sculptures, I think is is what you're referring to there. But then also actually has a lot of neo-Gothic in it as well, just in terms of the way the space is laid out, there's arches and so on. And so, you know, Dream is dressed in attire that is from the neoclassical period of European art. And then we get Death and Delirium wearing attire from the period when Neo-Gothic was all the, the rage. And then to top that off, the outfit that Dream changes into, I, I guess we could describe actually, you know, I called it glam rock, but I mean, that line between glam rock and early, you know, goth, you know, right, is is pretty, pretty thin. And so there might be a kind of joke there just on just sort of the, the history of gothicism in, uh, you know, visual arts, including clothing here that, that that's, you know, being played here. One thing before we go off this first panel, particularly with death that I'm confused by, and I don't think I've been able to find unless I'm just skipping over it, an explanation is when Destiny is standing in front of this portrait of death, it looks like there's two Destinies. And I assume since you have to take effort to do the art, right? It's not that you'd have to remove one of the Destinies and somebody forgot, right? (laughs) That there was an intentional decision to include both of those. At that point, is there still a choice that somebody could be making? And is that to represent the two forking branches of of destiny until the moment when he calls his sister and she first appears? And then from then on, we only see the one destiny. I thought it was a reflection at first, but I don't think it is because there's no mirror there. Right. There's nothing that that outlines that there's a mirror. And I think actually, if we look back to the the title page where we get this big, you know, single page panel of the the visual of his mm-hmm. of his home, we can actually make out the portraits there. We we see clearly that uh, the portrait, the you know, the tricorn hat portrait of mm-hmm. Dream okay. is is somewhere in the middle, and that it does look to me like to the left there is death. And so then when we get the next panel, which is Destiny standing in front of the portrait of death, you know, we can see that there is no mirror there, right? Because we've seen the layout of this room, that there's no mirror on, on either side and certainly not on the right side. So yeah, it can't be a mirror, but it does actually also look like there's something behind him though. And there really shouldn't be, right? Like there's some kind of wall or something there, but that's not what we've just seen in the panel previously of how this room is laid out. So I don't really even know how much we can actually trust that the layout is is helpful information here. Right. And, and that may be the case. And even in that, the as he enters his palace, I think there's two different places where we might be seeing the portraits because on the left, there's kind of a maybe even a kind of bas relief going on that may be, um, and in the colorized version that I'm looking at, it's the white characters in the middle of the panel. But then on the far right of the panel, there appear to be much larger kind of paintings that I decided later was what we were really looking at of um, it looks like death and then dream who is you know, being cut in half by the end of the panel 
um, in the side of the page um, on the far right. Um, but either place, it doesn't make sense where there is a wall or those lights are coming from or anything. It's very kind of confusing to me. But again, I, I wonder if the, it, again, is kind of an intentional destiny does walk a single path, but at this point, there are still the double fork, but I, I don't know. This might be something actually just for um, listeners to comment on um, in the forums or on Reddit um, to, to see what you all think. I think that this is left open to a lot of interpretation. Well, looking at the the next page, right, where we get the visual of of destiny, then calling dream, and and now death is is there already too. Mm-hmm. We then see again what's in between the portraits of of dream and death. And here too, it's actually not the thing that we just saw in the on the title page where we get the layout of the whole gallery. There's like a pillar there that shouldn't be there. It's not there in the title page at all. So perhaps subtly here in the art, there is something going on where we're actually seeing that even just the internal layout, the architecture of the palace, uh, you know, of, of Destiny's home is changing all the time. And I, I like some of the kind of subtle characterization we get here of the Endless where – as you mentioned, you know, Destiny is a little perturbed that his sister shows up not in the more formal attire. And so she kind of does a, a kind of updated version of it and says, well, this worked fine. So she's, you know, she's willing to play along and, uh, you know, but is going to do it her own way. Um, while Dream comes through looking like the spitting image of exactly what he's wearing in his portrait. And then he says to Death, uh, you have dressed formally also, I see, my compliments. And then she sticks her tongue out at him, which is – that says so much in those two panels about um, – well, I guess that page even about like the way Dream interprets – we've talked about this before. He has a very set-in-his-mind view of what his duties are and what other people's duties and obligations are. And he himself plays with what those really are, but he thinks he has a very codified set of expectations for himself and others, and he will definitely live up to those. And so in that way, he and destiny are kind of nicely at lockstep. Well, as death is going to do what death's going to do, and she's going to have a good time doing it. And so I think the, just the sticking her tongue out at her brother in response to that is great. Um, although I, I, it leads you to wonder, um, and I think it depends on how you feel about Dream and his sense of humor. Does he know he is making the joke? Um, or is he legitimately meaning the compliment and she is then uh, calling him on it? Yeah, I thought that he really means it. I think that he's kind of delusional about who Death is, right? Her character, that he really actually thinks that she, she seriously showed up you know, in this formal attire. And he thinks that's great. I, that's how I interpret it. Did you think that he was teasing her? In this comic, I interpreted him as being serious because he is so serious and also has blinders on so much throughout this particular issue. Um, and a lot of the series as well, but this particular issue, he is just so wrapped up in his own nonsense sometimes that I think he, (laughs) he really just doesn't see what everyone else can obviously see. Well, let's just sum up, Brent, where we are in this in this issue, in this story, right? So we're in you know, Destiny's Palace. He's called a family meeting. We've got Dream and Death and Delirium who have been summoned. We've seen them come through their portraits. But then also Desire and Despair are here. We do also get 
some discussion of someone who is missing. We see a portrait that's got a you know, red curtain over it. And you, know, you mentioned who this person is, Brent, that you know this is someone who is referred to as the prodigal, which we have encountered before in the Sandman. We're not going to learn any more about that here, but we are about to learn a lot about who is here, right? The next three pages give us a ton of text, kind of like a, an encyclopedia entry actually for each of the endless. But I was wondering, Brent, if there's a technical way to describe how these pages are are laid out? I don't think there is that I'm aware of. And um, in an interview, I think it was in the Sandman Companion, Neil talks about the fact that he decided like, well, I've got a cast of characters. I really need to make sure I'm accurately introducing them. So he decided to do the encyclopedic kind of entries, not sure if it would work and then feeling pleasantly surprised that he felt it did. And I, th- I think it does. I mean, we just, we essentially have only a couple tones of color going on, which I think help focus on just the text. And here it starts feeling a little bit more like an illustrated story and less like a comic book in terms of the panel composition in some ways. Right. I mean, that's exactly what's happening here. And and perhaps just to describe these these pages for people who aren't reading al- along with us or haven't read the, the series in a long time, we get three pages that are each uh, divided into two panels. They're divided uh, vertically. And each one is a drawing of the a, a member of the Endless family here. And then we get then just really kind of a wall of text describing who that character is is. It's all very interesting. And and it is actually just, as I said, a ton of text. We are going to need to take our time going through these pages. And I guess, you know, we should just do them in in order here, I guess, Brent, the order that Gaiman has them in. But I do want to call attention to the fact that Gaiman does have a bit of a rubric here and, and not necessarily in this order, but Gaiman is going to tell us about their physical appearance in human form, which is how we're seeing them here in this story. He's also going to tell us about their shadows and and also what they smell like. Uh, that's not all that he does, but it is an interesting way to contrast them to sort of give us kind of, um, I don't know, stats that we can compare, right? We can, we now know which, uh, we now know what each of the endless smells like. Uh, but I think, yeah, let's just walk through these characters, Brent, and I guess make a comment or two, you know, and, and, and maybe I'll just make a comment or two here just as a way of starting the conversation about them. So we get desire First, and I guess I think that what I found most interesting here about Desire is the description of Desire as having two shadows, uh, one black and sharp-edged, the other translucent and forever wavering, like heat haze. Uh, Beautiful, crisp writing there. I love that. But what do these shadows symbolize, do you think, Brent? Yeah, well, I think that they you know, symbolize kind of the attraction and sexuality of Desire, but also the painful interactions that you have as a result of, right? Those are kind of the two things that kind of get evoked in my head. Did you have a different interpretation of that? No, I didn't. I mean, I think that that's that's awesome. I think that's spot on. And I love the way that I guess Gaiman is taking a standard metaphor that we often use of something being it, you know, a double-edged sword, meaning it cuts both ways and perhaps only one of them is the way that you actually want it to cut. So be careful with this thing. Uh, you know, he's basically, I think, saying the same thing about desire here, right? That there are sort of two different ways that it works uh, and, you know, both can be dangerous. So be careful, you know, be careful with desire. And I, I do want to note, 
as you mentioned, mentioned smell here, um, which I think is really smart because it, it's hard sometimes for writers to remember to include smell as a descriptor. And um, I've, I've read a lot where people talk about, particularly for um, not just people who are writing fiction, but also for folks who are planning for their new D&D game for <laughs> Dungeon Masters and Game Masters and, you know, whatever the role is, um, to remember to occasionally engage smell, particularly if you're going to a dungeon, because there's so many things that smell. Um, <laughs> and that that's a great way to evoke things in ways that players will not expect as much, but also instantly can bring things to mind because of the connection that sometimes smell has to memory. Um, but I also want to note, you know, the only sense then we're not getting, because we're getting the visual, we're getting the smell. Um, I guess we're not necessarily getting sound, but we're also not getting taste. But I do want to note for desire, the taste we get is um, kind of wrapped up in the smell, right? That the desire smells almost subliminally of summer peaches. Like what you're smelling is something that you also, you know, a summer peach is something that I can instantly, I associate almost more the taste than the smell with it. The smell is the mark of the taste, which um, I think is very intentional with desire too, is because I think that's the, you know, I, and I, but I think if he had said desire tastes like, then it would be, you know, presumptuous that the reader would think they actually would taste desire. Cause I think part of desire is also the, you're not capable of capturing desire, right? It's always kind of a little out of um, reach um, in one of the two shadow forms, right? Um, on the other hand, um, the fact that it immediately causes you to engage that sense of taste as well, um, as well as, you know, obviously the, sexual connotation of, of peaches. Um, that's well done without being gratuitous. I'll say. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's true actually that peaches have a smell like just a, an, mm -hmm. you know, unbit or cut into peach actually has a smell. I mean, you know, you kind of have to get close to it, but, uh, like strawberries and blueberries and apples, like don't really have that kind of smell until you do something to them. Whereas peaches do, I don't, I don't, I, I didn't, did not think I was going to think that much actually about the different uh, uh, odors of fruits, but actually, yeah, that's completely true. And yeah, no, it's absolutely the perfect, the perfect descriptor for uh, for that. It's a great bit of characterization. I think Gaiman also does something really interesting here with despair. Well, I mean, he does something really interesting with all of them, but I was particularly keen on uh, some background material that we get with despair, where Gaiman says that. Long ago, in what is now Afghanistan, there was a sect that actually worshipped despair as a goddess, and they proclaimed all empty rooms to be her sacred places. And this sect called themselves the Unforgiven. And I am pretty sure that Gaiman has made this up, Brent, but I am really, really hoping that that's not true and that Klinger has something to say about this. Klinger has nothing to say about this uh, page. So, um, Oh, wow. I believe that uh, Gamet has made this up. I wonder why Afghanistan was chosen. 
Well, I think Afghanistan or, or someplace nearby, somewhere else in Central Asia is, is actually the place that I would have picked if I were writing this as well, because it's just a stand in for here's a place that is a hodgepodge of, of different cultures, uh, including you know, religion and language, food customs, clothing customs uh, over time that almost every you know, major religion that is practiced today has... Um, practitioners in Afghanistan or has had them in Afghanistan or other parts of Central Asia. Uh, Afghanistan also is a place that has um, really interesting uh, religious and cultural history as part of the Hellenistic world, where uh, you actually will see um, where you actually can find you know, sculptures of uh, Greek gods and goddesses and, and other types of figures, uh, but done in a very you know Central Asian style. Uh, so it's supremely, supremely fascinating there. There's old Buddhist stuff there as well. And so it fits nicely in the other trick that Gaiman is playing here, which is that he doesn't ground this in time, right? Um, so, you know, this could be totally prehistoric, uh, but it also could have really happened at any point in Afghanistan's history because there's so much uh, religious uh, specifically, and then also just more broadly cultural diversity in Central Asia that, yeah, this is the place I would have picked too. Well, I'm going to move us on here, Brent, because next up is Destiny and Destiny is, I was about to say probably, but I don't think there's any probably about it. Destiny is my favorite of the endless. And so I'm really struggling to resist the impulse to just read the entire text here and then uh, make you discuss every single word with me, but I will restrain <laughs> myself. I'll just pick out one thing here that I want to comment on before I turn it over to you. And that is that Gaiman writes, in the beginning was the word, and it was traced by hand on the first page of his book before ever it was spoken aloud. And look, this first clause, this is a quotation of the, the gospel of John in the, the, the Bible, right? And, and the, mm -hmm. the line that we get there is, in the beginning was the word. That text goes on to say, and the word was with God and the word was God. And so this just absolutely raises the question here of what is the relationship between destiny and the Abrahamic God. And I suppose, you know, maybe a minor spoiler here, but we are going to be talking about that God, the Abrahamic God, a lot during Season of Mists. So we might as well start now. And I think it's significant here that it's not in the in the language that Neil Gaiman gives us here. It's not that the beginning was the word and the word was written in Destiny's book. It's that it was traced by hand on the page of his book. So to trace something, it must already have been stamped elsewhere. So it's not, it's his book is a copy of things, which helps get out of certain interpretations where if the word is God itself, then that means that his book is not God itself. It is a copy maybe of God itself, but it's not God itself. So that's a nice way to get out of that box. But I think it's, it's clever to say that it was traced. Um, because it implies the closeness with which whatever hand traced it, whether it be destiny or someone else's, had to the source document, right? Um, but also distance those things. Yeah. So it does seem here that what Gaiman is envisioning is that there is something behind the endless, right? I think that uh, something I default to a lot when I'm thinking about this 
universe and when we're getting this story in particular, is that the endless are really the height of the numinous beings of the universe, right? That we've we've been meeting gods, uh, we've met Calliope, we've just had the fates in this issue. And so, you know, we learned that those actual beings exist and that they are, you know, something other than humans. They are different than humans. They're numinous, right? And then I tend to see the endless as being beyond that, above that in some way. And of course, we've also had Lucifer already in uh, Preludes and Nocturnes as well. But I see the Endless as being you know, above them, kind of a, a rung higher on some kind of you know, org chart, I guess. But this here does really seem to suggest that there's something still further even behind the Endless, that the Endless themselves are... Um, avatars in some way, agents of, of, you know, somehow. And that's interesting because we don't up to this point ever, you know, have them saying anything about that. And we had that big, you know, doll's house speech from dream in the doll's house. And he didn't really say anything that suggested that in that speech anyway. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things going on there. So what I believe we'll see, and we might've already seen previously is, you know, kind of the reference to in the org chart, what is at the top is capital C creator. But also then there's the, you're right, dream speech in Doll's House about the role of the endless in which he makes it sound like Caution's desire that humans are not their playthings. In fact, maybe it's the other way around. So then it the question is like, are the endless, and if we go to Neil's quote about their lack of names in the Sandman Companion, are they functions that the creator has created or are they functions that have arisen because there are people who in some level either need or want these functions to be occurring. And that's something that is not fully answered, but I think kind of considering all of those parts of, of the org chart, it's just like are, are humans, the low level of the org chart or are humans, the consumers of the product that the lower levels of the org chart that are the endless and, and you know, the, um, the other mythological figures that we see are, you know, f- providing, you know, the goods to in a completely unnecessarily capitalistic metaphor. I've just, given yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wondered where you were going to go with that metaphor there, Brent, but. Well, as I said, we are going to get more about the Abrahamic God here in this uh, this volume in this story arc, Season of Mist. So I won't I won't make us belabor this point right now because we're going to get a chance to return to it for sure. I do want to point out that there's two things that I really love about this uh, Destiny panel. First of all, that he's referenced as being the tallest of the Endless, and yet more so than any other picture I think we've seen so far of him, that book looks like such a huge burden that he is carrying in this particular drawing that Mike Drickenberg has given us. It's just, and it's really ornate and I, it's, it's really a great piece of art. Also, while in prior appearances pre Sandman, when other people in the DC continuity have used destiny, you know, in the anthology series and stuff, um, sometimes you would see his face, um, there was a conscious decision to not show as much of his face when he is in Sandman. And so here, though, I think we get the most of his face that we may get in any, certainly in this issue, but I think maybe even anywhere in the Sandman continuity, the fact that we see it just basically stops just shy of his eyes. So his eyes um, and forehead are in darkness, but we do see 
basically everything up to the bridge of his nose, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I paid a lot of attention actually to this issue. The last time I was able to dress up for a Halloween party, because this was the costume that I wore. I dressed up as Destiny and my wife, Elizabeth, actually dressed up as Delirium. And so I paid real special attention to to this issue and how he was depicted here. And I, I did my best to get my face covered in exactly, you know, the, the right way, uh, which was actually you know kind of difficult to do. But I, I pulled that off. But yeah, the book, the book was the real issue here because this book is massive and it's really heavy. And um, I, I wanted to be able to hold a drink in my hand. So uh, I went with a smaller book when I, uh, when I made my costume. Yeah, the trouble with Halloween costumes is the things that seem best to us in our head are things that we don't actually want to wear for more than like 15 minutes <laughs> yeah. or carry around for that long. Or we do want to be able to have a drink or go to the restroom at some point. So yeah, that oftentimes is uh, <clears throat> does cause some limitations as to what we wear uh, outside of the initial photo. Yeah, and and the actual destiny here is genuinely chained to his book. I I could take mine off at at, at any point, and I think I did. It, it just you know abandon it at some point. So yeah, this is an interesting idea here, right? Even just that destiny is chained to this book. You know, I mean, he's shackled, right? I mean, this is a burden. This book is a a, a burden. It certainly does prevent him from having a drink at a party, I guess, among other things. But uh, I think it's also going to be something that we'll see you know, eventually is a much more serious. Burden burden even, even than that. So then we have the only member of the Endless who uh, we had not met previously, um, except for uh, the missing one, um, which is Delirium. Um, and we get quite a bit about Delirium, particularly relative to the other um, members of the family. Right. Yeah. She's the only one we haven't met at all yet. So I guess the real question here, Brent, is you know, what, what do people need to know? What does the audience need to know about Delirium? you know, for this story to work. There's a lot packed in here. She smells of sweat and sour wines and late nights and old leather, and that her realm is the closest and can be visited, but it's not for something for us to, to have. She's kind of in some ways depicted as more terrifying even than desire or despair, just because of the proximity. And there's some things she says later that uh, she's done that um, have some really dark connotations, but she's also, you know, kind of depicted as a very vulnerable, almost a, a, a young woman in crisis, if you will, um, <laughs> regarding her own identity, but also that something terrible seems to have happened to Delirium at some point. And here we even are told um, that some say the tragedy of Delirium is her knowledge that despite being older than sons, older than gods, she is forever the youngest of the endless who do not measure time as we measure time or see worlds through mortal eyes. Others deny this and say delirium has no tragedy, but they speak without reflection for delirium was once delight. And although that was long ago now, even today, her eyes are badly matched. One eye is vivid emerald green spattered with silver flecks that move. Her other eye is vain blue. Um, so, I mean, we were immediately introduced to delirium as this is a tragic figure more so than we've seen depicted so far among the endless um, and that she was delight. And we have no information here as to what caused this change. 
Yeah, we don't get any indication of you know, what it is that has caused this, but just the fact that this is something that can be caused uh, is super fascinating, right? If we, we go back again to thinking about that Doll's House speech and think about the Endless as these avatars of you know qualities of the, the universe or qualities of living in the universe, living in creation, it, it's interesting to see what these are, right? That their destiny and their death and their dream. But the fact that we then get, you know, one of them is despair and one of them is delight, those seem to be sort of opposites. So there's a sense there that, you know, there's a, a kind of richness of our emotional experiences of being alive that is being represented there by those two figures. But one of them changed. And so it suggests, right, that it's something actually has changed about the universe, about the, the cosmos, about living in this created world. Something about that has changed such that this anthropomorphic representation has also changed. And just, you know, what can change the nature of the universe, right? I mean, that's that's a kind of crazy thing to even you know try to fathom here but we know that something did cause that or at least that there was some change somehow and there's an additional kind of layer of tragedy on top of that right because i mean even if destiny makes no choices he still does do what needs to be done is based on what's written in his book um dream we see actively creates dreams and does seem to varying degrees particularly as we'll talk about more later this issue, whether he has has a specific relationship with you, um, <laughs> to care somewhat about dreamers and desire, much to the uh, dismay of many people who experience, you know, them, um, does kind of still want to kind of pump desire into the ecosystem, right, of, of the ex human experience and, and reality. But there's now no longer a an external functional entity that is either trying to maintain some kind of realm of delight or push actively delight upon humans or, you know, in the way instead we have delirium. And like that's that also says something I think about the struggle that then we all have to make our own delight. Cause there's not like an external delight land the way there is the external dreaming. Right. Right. Yeah. No, this is a great observation here, Brent. Right. Because I was certainly presenting this as these people are all representations of something about the universe. And that if there's a change, then it is, it means that the universe itself has changed, but it could be the other way around. Right. It could be that, you know, these are people, these are individuals who actually exist in some way. And it's simply that this individual has had something tragic happen to her such that she is now yeah, traumatized and that being traumatized, the function of delight has disappeared. It's not being tended to in the universe. And then this must be having an effect on us, right? So, you know, there, there are sort of two ways to see the cause and effect here. There's probably... A third option where it's where it's both somehow, right? Which is probably ultimately where we'll come down uh, when we're done with this series altogether. But it will be interesting to see, you know, sort of what what Gaiman does to expand this and explain this to us. I'm I'm excited about that. 
Uh, there's a bit here too in this description of Delirium, Brent, where uh, some Coleridge is invoked. There's a Col- nice Coleridge uh, illusion here. Uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the uh, 19th century uh, romantic English poet. Does Klinger have anything to say about this? He mainly just talks about the um, the role that Coleridge plays in terms of the romantic movement, um, talks about some of his great works and the role that he plays just even for those who knew him as a stimulating conversationalist and perceptive influential critic um, and his towering reputation. That's mainly what he says. Hi, Bender briefly mentions this as well and talks about how um, he was known to um, use opium um, and laudanum. Um, And so that is likely what is being referenced here. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what's being referenced here. Uh, you know, I, and I did describe him as being 19th century, but I should be clear that, of course, also he, he was writing in the late 18th century and then also into the, the early 19th century. And so he also actually is a figure who fits right in with the, the costumery that we have gotten, at least of, of uh, uh, dream and, and death here. He's most famous, of course, right, for writing The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, uh, which is something that uh, Brandon and I talked quite a bit about when we covered the fifth head of Cerberus over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, because there's a, a, a an epigram uh, that draws on the rhyme of the ancient mariner in that book. But he is also famous for having written the poem Kubla Khan, which is basically an opium dream set to really beautiful verse. And yeah, so that has to be what, what Gaiman has in mind here when he's saying, you know, Coleridge knew delirium well. And I guess that that also then gives us a date, right? That we, we know that at least by by the early 19th century, delight had transformed into delirium. Uh, we, you know, we don't know, you know, if it was the day before that or something like that, but we know that at least, um, it, you know, it's been, you know, from our perspective now, at least, it's been 200 years since, at least, since delight has been gone and replaced by delirium. And I don't remember, um, and this will be something interesting for us to keep watching as we go. And may perhaps you recall, I'm not sure that. We are ever really given a hard date of when things occur. Um, so I will throw out, because um, it won't be spoilers for me to say this, because it's based entirely on what we've read so far. If the connection between the change from delight to delirium is not at all related to the closing of most of the doors between fairy um, and the fae and earth that we see talked about in Midsummer Night's Dream. That's at least what came to mind when we, I saw the portrait this time of Delight in the kind of rolling green hill. And I immediately was thinking about the green hills of that issue that served as the stage for that play. That's a really interesting reading of that, Brent. And of course, yeah, we're, I look forward to when we actually get to try to tease that out. But uh, this just calls to mind what I think is one of the actually most famous lines from A Midsummer Night's Dream, right? Which is, there sleeps Titania, sometime of the night, lulled in these flowers with dances and delight. I mean, it's like right there in the you know description of T- Titania's uh, uh, character, like this sleeping that she's going through here, that delight is a, a something of a major, but also kind of magical function in that play. So yeah, it would be interesting to see the, you know, the, the, the exiting of the, the, the fairies as having something to do with uh, the relationship uh, with delight here changing as well. Uh, I look forward to testing that out. So then we turn to our protagonists most of the time, uh, Dream, and we get a little bit about him here. 
I'm not sure if there was anything that particularly grabbed me as new information. Was there anything that grabbed you as something new or just interesting that Neil decided to focus on in this description of Dream? Well, not something new. I mean, I think the one thing that really stands out to me here is that Gaiman says that of all the endless, Dream is the most conscious of his responsibilities, except maybe for destiny. And I think that this is characterization, but it's characterization that actually tells us more about the other members of the Endless than it does about Dream, right? So, you know, we do always make this joke about, you know, whether or not, you know, is, is, is Dream actually the protagonist of this series or, you know, this or that issue? Uh, but here also, even when Gaiman is trying to describe this character, he's really actually doing more to describe the other characters. It's a kind of like way of, of, of like negative description, right? By telling us what Dream is not like. Uh, it's very interesting. And then for death, we simply get, and there is death. Yeah, that that's that's it. That's literally all her panel says. And I, I just, yeah, what's that about? <laughs> I also want to mention, though, that so each of these panels we mentioned before, there is, if we ignore the black text, there's only kind of two colors at play. There's the white, you know, the default color of the page. And then there is one color used for like a single monochrome print for the art. But for death the monochrome color that is used is black. So there is not any color that is kind of there instead of black for the art the way there is with everyone else. I really like all of these images here of, of each of these characters. They're all slightly different. The colors, I think, are very, very cool. And you know, I know that at the end of the episode, of course, Brent, we'll talk about what our favorite panel in this issue is. But I wonder if, you know, just limiting ourselves to these uh, drawings here of the members of the Endless, if you had a favorite one of these. In a comic that this uh, issue is particularly about Destiny, I think that the art for Destiny is great, partially just because he's given more stuff to have on him, too. Like that book, there's a lot more going on there. But there's one that is there one that particularly grabbed you? Yeah, I mean, for me also, it was it was destiny, and and yeah, because it's so focused on the book. <laughs> you know, I love the book. The book is very very cool. Also, I just love I just love destiny's outfit. But I, I will say, I think that whole page is fantastic, right? Because as you say, it's it's juxtaposed with delirium there as well. And these are actually just two beautiful colors to have right next to each other. Like I think this is actually just a very very pretty page, like just setting aside mm. even what's the content of it. It's just something that would actually look quite nice, you know, on your wall. All right, well, let's uh, let's get back into the plot here, Brent. So what happens next is basically a scene from reality TV. Destiny has you know the whole family sit around a heptagonal table, which does leave one empty chair for this prodigal person that we've heard about. And then Destiny just says, you're probably wondering why I brought you all here. You know, like this is about to be some kind of, you know, locked door mystery story or something <laughs> like that. But he actually just tells them about the prologue to this prologue with the the three fates and then he tries to just leave them to it and it does not go well uh dream thinks that this whole thing is just a waste of time and he wants to leave death asks him to stick around and also eat a grape delirium is mostly talking to herself until desire threatens dream and then also kills delirium's pet magic butterflies. And then on top of that, Desire goads Dream about Nada until Dream storms out of the room. Um, he doesn't you know, storm out of Destiny's realm, but he does at least go outside. Uh, we'll pick up there in just a moment. But I actually think, Brent, we need to talk about Nada here, right? 
Nada is a previous romantic interest of dreams. She is at this moment, she's imprisoned in hell, um, and she's going to remain imprisoned in hell until Dream forgives her for something that she did to him. And it has already been 10,000 years. And we first encountered her in A Hope in Hell back in Preludes and Nocturnes. Uh, that's actually where we learned everything I just said. But then she got her own story in the standalone issue, Tales in the Sand. But during that episode, we talked about the fact that that story is completely subjective, right? We know that that story is one of two stories that the culture that maintains this tradition about Nada actually has. There's a men's story and a women's story, and we got the men's story. And we talked about how there is no reason to assume that anything in that story is true, that none of it is an accurate account of what actually happened between Nada and Dream. But here, in in this issue, Desire at least confirms, you know, really the broadest element of that story, which is that Nada turned down Dream, like in a, in a romantic sense, right? And that that is why she's imprisoned. I was hoping that was going to turn out, you know, not to be true, but right here it is. And Dream continues to really not look good here, right, in this story about Nada. And that's one thing <laughs> for you to be needled about, you know, by a sibling uh, who you are getting into frequent fights about with, you know, your <laughs> past dating life. Um, but <laughs> when you are so clearly in the wrong um, <laughs> as to having sent someone who you profess to still love um, to hell, uh, it's not a good look. Um, and it's kind of. It, it's easy pickings then for Desire to eventually uh, mention it. Although I wonder if Desire even realizes that that's going to be the straw that breaks the back, or if that's just that Desire is just like, let me just gradually lay out what cards I have and wait until he pops. And that's the one that does it. Or if Desire is just intentionally kind of building to the big one that will clearly also get, and we see here at least death to, Agree that desire is right, that he would, he treated her unfairly and uh, that it was uh, an overstep. Right. This is what happens when Dream is out on the veranda, you know, sulking. And it, it is a beautiful place to go sulk, to be sure. But yeah, death follows him out. And yeah, death just says what we've all been thinking. Also, what you know, you and I have just been saying, right? Which is that Dream's a jerk and desire is basically right here. And surprisingly, Dream listens. But it's also like he's never actually thought about this before, right? Like he's, it's never occurred to him that actually he might be in the wrong, that possibly this is not an okay way to treat a person. But he you know, genuinely listens. And so he actually decides that he now needs to rectify this horrible mistake that he's made, uh, which is to say that he decides uh, that he actually needs to go to hell and set Nada free. And he indicates that this is something that might be dangerous. Uh, we don't actually get anything specific about that, but still Dream says there's a chance that he will actually die by going to hell again. And then when Death returns, when she goes back inside to the rest of the family, Destiny says, that's it. All we needed was for Dream to return to hell to start <laughs> things in motion, right? Like, you know, whatever those things are actually going to turn out to be. And that's that's the issue, right? It ends there. And it really is a, a, a true prologue, right? It's full of exposition, full of vague hints at the plot to come. Uh, I enjoyed the heck out of this. 
Yeah, it, it's great. Both having kind of the family interaction drama, um, the bit with the butterflies where Delirium conjures them, and then Desire, just to mess with her, um, has them attracted to flames so that then they die. And uh, at, at this point in the annotated Sandman, Leslie Klinger notes that in a lot of mythology, um, butterflies are associated with being human souls. And so that you know, there's other implications there, but certainly the fact that then death has to care for these butterflies that are dead because they're souls. But there's certainly a lot going on. The other thing I want to quickly mention is, you know, we had mentioned before that Destiny appeared alone in his massive domain before he invited the family, except for when the Grey Lady showed up. However, we do see his servants, these kind of ghostly things fly out to bring refreshments, as he phrases it, which appears to be bowls of fruit and some wine. And the annotated Sandman has a note here from the script of the comic um, where those servants are described by Neil Gaiman. He uh, says, quote, we're looking down at Destiny's side of the table from enough distance that we can see the little Destiny Ets fluttering around. There are three of them. About the size of pillows, little empty gray robes, like miniature versions of Destiny's own robe, but with no one inside, serving the table with refreshments, bowls of fruit, grapes, apples, peaches, and other more alien fruits, and caraf uh, carafes of wine. No one looks at them, unquote. So um, I think it's just fun to get the descriptor, and I think it's fun to think, like, who will be in Destiny's realm since it looks like he's all alone? And basically it's like... No one is there. It's just it's just other aspects of destiny or like his cloak that does things. It's uh, for those who are watching uh, Marvel movies. It's uh, Doctor Strange's cloak just doing its own thing. That's basically what we got going on. <laughs> I see. I, I was going to make a Dementor joke. I think these look like, yeah. you know, Dementors just bringing you bowls of fruit, which is a, a special <laughs> type of nightmare, I think. <laughs> yep, that works. Or uh, for... Folks who play D&D, it's the Unseen Servant spell, just uh, multiplied by three. <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually more likely that that's what's going on here than anything else. But yeah, it's a fun little story where we've got kind of the personality clashes of the Endless. Desire and Dream picking each other, or more so Desire picking at Dream, and then Dream threatening Desire, and then Destiny saying, <laughs> no, not not here, you, you overstep yourself. Which, on the one hand, as Destiny is the eldest, perhaps in raw power in superhero clash style, perhaps, like, Destiny is more powerful than Dream, um, but even if he wasn't, I think because of Dream's wanting to at least give the auspices that he believes in the formalities of things, he is not going to, as a guest, start a fight with another guest that his host says no to, nor is he going to start a fight of with his host in his host's own house, right? That's not what you do. Right. I mean, Dream follows the rules, right? That's the one thing that we know about Dream that, that really matters is that he follows the rules, that uh, decorum and politeness and courtesy are things that really, really matter to him. We get that in the description, the encyclopedia description of him. And that's also the core of the joke here about death's attire, right? Where Dream clearly just, yeah, this is a formal event, so I'm wearing my formal clothing. I'm glad to see that you're wearing your formal clothing as well, because obviously that's what's appropriate and what's Required of us, yeah. That's who. That's who Dream is. Boy, he would. He would never do anything. Ever, ever do anything to rock the boat, right? But ultimately, I mean, you know, it's it. This is all. This is all about. This is this whole issue. Um, 
and the Grey Lady's coming to the realm, and it's all just to get Destiny, or it's all to get Desire to hurl the right barb at Dream so that he realizes he should go to hell. I think it works very well. On the one hand, on the other hand, nothing happens in this comic. <laughs> right. I mean, it is a true prologue, right? This is here to give us information about the world, to let us know that there's actually like a, a bigger world outside of maybe the most immediate story that we're about to get, and that the stakes are high. This is actually something that really also makes this volume, the Season of Mist story arc, feel like it's a chapter in a longer story rather than a self-contained story mm -hmm. in a, a series of self-contained stories, right? This prologue here makes this feel like big, big things are being set in motion. And I, you know, it does what it's supposed to do, right? That's what the prologue's function is. You know, generally speaking, that is what a prologue's function is. It's certainly in speculative fiction what a prologue's function is. And I, it works brilliantly here. And it's a nice introduction as well, right, for new readers, right? This is coming at a moment when Sandman has gotten a lot of press, but we didn't necessarily have, you know, these volumes easily available to get. Certainly, you know, you weren't reading comics on the internet at that point. And so this was a jumping on point for a lot of people. And this does a lot of, of work to catch us all up. Well, it's been a while since we've done this, Brent, but it is actually time now for us to move out of talking about the plot and uh, talk about uh, the cover, the title, and then also pick some favorite panels. Uh, this cover here for this issue looks... It looks like Dave McKean doing some Salvador Dali, but I am otherwise at a real loss as to just you know how to describe even what is on the cover for people who haven't seen it. Uh, it's a bizarre cover. Yeah, it is. And in the dust covers, there's not a lot of information. There's a bit from Dave McKeon about all of the covers for the Seasons of Mist, where he explains that, um, you know, Karen Berger was asking him, uh, Kerberger was asking him, you know, what he was going to do, and he kind of haphazardly scribbled some stuff down, and with font and how seasons and mists would look, and the S and the M, kind of like Sandman, and he kind of was making it up as he went, and she politely knew that, but pretended that you know he had given thought to it. Um, so you know, we get these collages, and you know, they're very beautiful. Well, they're they're very different from what we've got before, but I think that also is kind of to the success of them of having this stand out. We also in the dust covers get a quote from Neil regarding this particular issue in which he says, and in the blink of an eye, we reinvent ourselves once more. I remember only Dave showing me with a ballpoint pen and a scrap of paper what the Seasons of Mist covers would look like, showing me the new cover, the new logo, the topography, the way the S and M of Seasons of Mist would overlay with Sandman logo. Uh, by the time he had finished, I had no clue what the new covers would look like. Sounds brilliant, I said, figuring it would be. Um, and that's all we have on this one. <laughs> so, and I, I mean, I think it, it, it's gorgeous. Um, I think it tells me less about the comic than um, about what happens in this issue than many of the other ones we've talked about before. So while I like it a lot, it's, it's not going to rate for me so much. We've got this book with like a slash that has gone through the picture that even holds the book, perhaps. So it's as if we're throwing out the book or the book doesn't apply. We've got a head that is leaking stuff out of it, or maybe ideas are coming out of it or something's happened. We've got a lot of faces holding things. 
We got a lot of threads holding. I mean, I'm not even sure what is fully going on here. What What are your thoughts on the cover? Well, yeah, I can't explain what's fully going on here either. But yeah, we've got these kind of you know statue figures. Some of them are just faces, or I guess one of them is just a face. One of them's a, a bust. Some of them look a little bit like Russian nesting dolls, but they're all supporting this book, right? And I think that we can fairly say this is probably Destiny's book, right? And so there's this sense here of all these sort of weird you know, figures and that don't look like each other, right? So they're all kind of distinct from one another, but that are all holding this up. And they do each look like this is a burden, right? And so, you know, there's a sense here maybe in which this cover is about, you know, the burden of Destiny, the burden of Destiny's book, and, and, and kind of the crushing weight of it, perhaps, that, you know, might be meant to set the tone for what this whole story arc is going to be, or perhaps even, you know, what you know, the Sandman saga beyond this story arc is going to be. So the title, and we we get two titles here, right? Because we get episode zero or we get Seasons of Mist prologue, but we also get the more in-depth kind of subtitle with the nice descriptors of of all the things that are going on here. Right. Well, we've, we're in a weird situation here with the titles here in that the individual issues are just going to you know, have the name of the volume and then, you know, an episode number, in this case, zero, although also it is referred to as as prologue. And I mean, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here, Brent, to say that we're, we're not going to need to spend any time talking about what Gaiman might be referring to by episode two, right? Like, I think we've got a fair <laughs> sense of what he means by that. So I think we probably should, though, talk about the volume title here, right? And then do that again in the wrap-up episode, of course. And that is Season of Mist, right? And this is the opening phrase of uh, one of my favorite poems by the English romantic poet, uh, not Coleridge, but in this case, uh, John Key. Uh, you and I, Brent, we were fairly obsessed with the romantic poets Byron and Shelley when we were teenagers. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, which also means, hey, when we were reading Sandman for the first time. And I have gone on, I think, really since you and I were obsessed with Byron and Shelley to actually, I think, <laughs> prefer Keats and Coleridge and Wordsworth uh, to either Byron or Shelley. And, and I don't know, maybe that's an arc that a lot of a, a lot of people experience. Uh, you know, the, the the arc from adolescence to middle age perhaps might actually be mapped onto the romantic poets for most people in exactly that way. But I, I particularly got really into the, these romantic poets uh, when I was living in England. And I actually went to the Keats House Museum in, in London and really, really enjoyed that as well. But at any rate, the, the poem here that this line comes from is called To Autumn. And the the whole line is, and this is the opening line of this poem, but the whole line is season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Uh, and then the next line is close, cl- close bosom friend of the maturing sun. And, and that gives us actually a like complete thought there. So is the real question is, you know, having, having read only episode zero, only this prologue, what do you think Gaiman is doing by, by cribbing this phrase here from Keats? Well, I think here he is cribbing it partially just for the throwback to the period, but also there is some reaping that has to occur based on prior sowing, right? So the fruitfulness of past actions, both by dream and by others, um, that is coming to pass. But uh, the mellow is implying, I think, for us to kind of, you know, set in that this is going to not be something sharp and not a slow burn, or it'll be more of a slow burn, but also that it, it may not be something so delightful that we'd really particularly want it 
I also want to mention um, in Highbender, Sam and Companion, uh, Neil Gaiman uh, mentions that he usually misremembers the, the line. Uh, instead, he thinks it's seasons of mists and mellow frightfulness. Oh, wow. That's really, really interesting there. Yeah. I mean, I, so I love this poem. Autumn's my favorite season. And, and by the way, just for listeners who might be vaguely interested, hey, we're recording this on Halloween, even though it's not actually going out <laughs> until the following May. So I'm steeped in autumn stuff right now. And yeah, it seems like there's maybe two versions of this poem. There's the one with mellow fruitfulness in which Keats is just describing this sort of bucolic setting. He's describing the English countryside at the transition from summer into autumn and is really going through what it's like to be on a on a farm and like you know what what are the nature things that are happening here so there's you know stuff about you know what's happening on the granary floor there's the cider press um you know lambs are not babies anymore you know they're on the cusp of adulthood what's going on with bees at this time of year and so on and you know that's the kind of like seasonal sense of of autumn here but i like that gaiman's got this other version of this poem in mind where it's not mellow fruitfulness it's not harvest time right it's mellow frightfulness it's halloween time guys right that there's a there's a kind of <laughs> alternate uh, alternate version of this poem that's actually a, like a horror poem that is almost certainly right in lucian's library back in the back in the dreaming and i want to get <laughs> my hands on that. That's great. But I do think that, you know, season of mist one, it's just a cool phrase. And this idea that this is a misty time of year is very, very cool. It's a great evocative image. But I also think that, you know, anytime we're taking anything uh, that's going to make readers think about autumn, we're thinking about autumn as the waning part of the year, the end of the year, something drawing to a close, also things dying, right? And so I think that's what's being suggested here, right? Because it's also what's definitely happening in this prologue, right? We get uh, a king is going to forsake his kingdom uh, you know the oldest battle will be you know taken up again and you know huge huge things are going to start to happen with significant consequences so it sounds like something is coming to an end uh, you know the whole thing with the fates showing up is talking about endings and beginnings and yeah that's that's what's you know happening when we evoke autumn in general i think yeah i mean it is things coming to an end um but it's things coming to an end that have also been long kind of promised and it's the result of, you know, all the plants that are kind of withering had sprouted back in the spring um, and, you know, harvest time had occurred because of all the effort that was done before that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot about consequences, I think, too. Well, let's talk uh, favorite panels, Brent, and I, I, I fear that I actually made you already talk about yours. <laughs> I had one in mind. And then when we were talking about the encyclopedia entries, I decided, nope, uh, this Destiny encyclopedia entry is actually my favorite panel. That's what I'm going to do. And then you uh, had me talk about that faster. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to what I thought was my favorite panel, which is the uh, the appearance of delirium. So um, and what I love about it is. You know, it follows the portrait of Delight, but instead we have just the white outline of what Del where Delight was in the portrait. And instead we have something that looks very different and just the abruptness of what we are presented with. I think it's it's jolting um, and I think it's strange. And I think the text bubbles are and the way they do the the uh, text for delirium throughout the rest of Sandman and where delirium appears is, is just wonderful. So here we actually have seen with someone who doesn't just get a different font the way that desire does, but we actually get a different font 
and the use of color um, and even kind of, you know, squiggly uh, bubbles uh, for the word balloons. I just, I, but what's your favorite panel? Well, we're leaning into our uh, our own tropes here, Brent. You have picked, you know, a close up image of a person, and I have uh, done my best to pick a, a panel that has no people in it, or as few people as possible. And so, <laughs> yeah, mine is the the title page. I love these big images of uh, you know of architecture or landscapes, right? And here, Destiny's Gallery is just awesome. It's this beautiful, largely neo gothic gallery, though it has some neo classical bits in it. Yeah, you know, this is where the portraits are. We actually see death and dream, you know, vaguely on one side here. But the real center of attention is actually down the hall. And it's it's something that looks like a victory arch, which is a you know pretty standard bit of architecture that uh, we've actually inherited from the Romans. You know, it's famous for the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, also the arch in Washington Square Park in New York, which we've actually seen in this series before. I was looking at this one fairly closely, and I actually think it may be based on the Wellington Arch in Hyde Park Corner in London. I'd love to know if Klinger has anything to you know say about that. But at any rate, yeah, I love architecture. I love looking at gorgeous interiors. I mean, I, I visit museums in part because I love the spaces themselves and not necessarily what's in them. And this is a place that I would love to visit. I mean, I think of the you know, three dwellings, three endless dwellings we've seen so far. This is the one I would most love to go to just, you know, to visit the space itself for its own aesthetic. Uh, But I also love that in the foreground, but then actually below the horizon line is Destiny himself in his robes holding, you know, this massive book. And so there's a real juxtaposition here of a medieval monk with, you know, some gigantic neo-Gothic gallery with also some clear bit of 19th century imperialism in it. And and also just in general, I think a real uh, ton of uh, wealth or or maybe opulence, I guess, probably is the way to say that. And so to me, this panel is also just a fantastic writing prompt, right? Like if you don't have any context for what this is, but we're given this and told to tell a story about what is happening here, you could really write something, you know, very, very Cool. And you could give this to 10 different writers and get 10 very different, even just ideas of where this is set, what's happening in this in this picture. It, it's, a, it's a cool panel. No, it's great. Um, and Leslie Klinger doesn't necessarily make any notes about this panel. However, he does share some of Neil's directions about depicting Destiny's Garden, which I think are maybe relevant here in that you know, he wanted a bunch of columns and arches and, but he specifically did not want any kind of statuary. And so I think it's interesting that when we get to Destiny entering his hall here, we get, uh, we get portraits, we get, could just be that these are like bar reliefs or otherwise that could be statues. It's not entirely clear, but it, it causes me to wonder, which I hadn't before, whether some of these other bits of are perhaps either members of the endless in various scenes from their existence, or if they are other related people, you know, other kind of more distant family that are not the brothers and sisters, but perhaps other um, individuals associated with um, them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I mean, the, the bit here, you know, down beneath the arch is, 
I think technically actually another corridor. I mean, one of the things that I really love about this is that this suggests that this is quite laid out like a Gothic cathedral here where we get uh, intersecting uh, corridors. None of that's the technical architectural term for for what a a Gothic cathedral is like, but uh, just intersecting corridors here. And so the arch and then what's underneath the arch at kind of, you know, the, the base level of it are perhaps not necessarily associated with what we're actually seeing in the gallery where destiny is actually standing, but might be something else entirely. I I do think that those are sculptures in alcoves there and not paintings. But I think also what's interesting there is that there seems to be some kind of writing or at least some kind of iconography, uh, you know, at the base of them. Like there's, there's some epigraphy there. There's something carved into the stone. None of it, even with a magnifying glass here, actually says anything, but it, it's supposed to look like it does. And so I think we can assume that it does say something. And so, yeah, I want to know who those people are. I mean, I really want to know who those people are. And I wonder, you know, where we see some of the other arches and some of them are just dark and some of them appear to have a statue in them. Um, but then also we see some, you know, squares and rectangles otherwise in some of the columns that are often blank looking. If those are representations of members of the family for events that have not transpired yet. So it's like hanging empty frames for where you will, will put pictures for future events in your family's life because destiny's garden and may already know that events will transpire, even if he does not yet know them. And I definitely, I definitely agree that my read on the figures that are above destiny's head in, in the center of the panel is that those are not paintings, that those are either, some form of either, you know, kind of self, um, self-standing statues that are in some kind of alcoves or that they're at least like reliefs upon a marble surface. I'm not considering them to be the paintings the way I think the things on the right hand adjustment of the panel of the, of the, yeah, the panel are. Well, someday we'll uh, we'll hope we can get a tour of Destiny's home and uh, investigate further. But I think, I think for now, that's going to have to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the network and get access to all of our bonus episodes, I hope you'll check us out on patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. We'll be back next month with the next episode in Season of Mists. That one will be Season of Mists, episode one. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>